0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Joining us today is a good friend, Rosmus Hindren, who is the head of international relations at the European Union's Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats in Helsinki. The organization is charged with detecting and assessing long-term threats facing the 27-nation union, allowing member nations individually to prepare for the future by building the capabilities to deter and, if necessary, fight and win. Uh, This is one of a series of conversations that we're having with leading strategists and thinkers uh, and is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. The strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Rasmus, welcome to the program uh, and congratulations on uh, the new job uh, that you'll be taking on heading uh, the uh, department uh, that works will be working policy for both uh, the EU as well as NATO uh, at the Finnish Ministry of Defense.
1: Thank you, Vago. Great to talk with you. Before we get
0: started, Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, uh, not only sponsors our strategy series, but our strategy coverage overall, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage, and Spirit Aerosystems. Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's uh, Air, Space, and Cyber Conference and Trade Show uh, next, uh, that starts next week outside Washington. Rosmus, first tell the audience uh, about the center and what it does because you guys have an absolutely fascinating uh, mission, uh, right? Whether or not uh, the member nations want to follow your advice is a separate question, but your function is actually a fascinating one.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, the center itself is is quite unique uh, in a sense that it's an international uh, entity. It's really working closely with the governments of the participating states. There are actually 33 uh, participating, participating states at the moment, uh, both from the EU and NATO. Uh, and we work closely with them, but we are not formally linked to the governments. So that puts us in a good position where we have a certain independence, certain flexibility, to look at the, the broader threat environment, um, provide a platform for discussions and give some advice to the participating states who then, as you said, can either take the advice or, or decide to, to disregard it. But, um, but it's, it's quite a unique organization. It's still relatively young, but it's been growing quite a lot and it seems that there will be still plenty of work uh, ahead of us.
0: Um, one of the uh good uh, points about it is that the the job and the role tends to attract strategists uh, which is which is good and we're going to and obviously we talk about strategy uh on uh this program um, what you do also depends on up-to-date intelligence uh, cooperations not only among the thirty three member uh, nations that are or the thirty three nations that are participating in in the center of excellence, but also allies and partners. Uh, NATO' has always been foundational to European uh, security, and that means the United States and 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 Canada. How are you working together? Because uh, this is a real mosaic. Uh, and yeah. other people bring different points of view, right? I know you, you guys have had conversations, for example, with the Japanese, who have a different sense on what Russia and and, and China, for example, look at uh, look as as threats. How do you guys work all of the pieces of this to assemble that mosaic into the clearest picture of what the future looks like? Given given how important it is to have that foresight.
1: So the, the starting point for us is is to take a comprehensive view of security so it means that on a national level we got to be talking to the to the usual suspects the ministries of defense uh, foreign affairs uh, interior and, and so on uh, but also to the other uh, governmental actors and then uh, broadening it even beyond the governmental actors so talking to the agencies talking to the different organizations and the same applies uh, internationally as well we got to take a broad uh, look at these threats and and that's how we can try to 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 weave it together um, the other thing is is that um, we are not so much involved in in uh, intelligence or, or classified uh, materials. It's mostly based on open sources, which of course can be a handicap in a sense that we don't have always access to the latest uh, intelligence uh, reporting. But it also means that we can then reach out to the broader public because one of uh, our mission is to, to raise awareness about the threat environment, about hybrid threats in particular. And we can do that because we are mostly based on open sources.
0: So as you look at uh, all of this, uh, you know, you try to put that uh, picture together. What are the threats that are facing the European Union uh, and member nations, and which means by definition facing Europe?
1: So I think it's become almost a cliche to say that the threat environment has become more complex. You know, people always say that, but that it's, it's also true in a way how because it's a, it's a broader range of instruments of power that's being used uh, these days, but also that they're being used in a more um, integrated way and in more innovative combinations. But also, you know, a lot of the things are, are as, as old as, as humanity. Uh, we have seen the use of different levers of power and we've seen total war in history. But there are also things that have changed. Uh, technology has definitely changed a lot of things. Uh, things happen faster. They touch on huge numbers of people and allow for all kinds of um, unsavvy behavior, uh, exploiting our dependencies on things that we didn't even necessarily know that we depend on. So it is uh, much more complex in, in, in that sense. And the other thing is that uh, the relationship between the individuals and the, the, the countries, the, the governments, is, is also changing. Because the individuals these days can be targeted in, in new ways. They can also be actors uh, on their own right. Uh, they can have strategic effects on the, on the battleground. Uh, but the, the relationship is changing. Uh, and that means also that we have to be much more uh, closely observing what's happening in the in the mental part of our uh, security and resilience. So what is the population uh, doing? what's the level of polarization? Uh, what is the level of legitimacy uh, for our decision makers because it doesn't really matter if you have a uh, huge um, capabilities or, or you know defense capabilities, if you're lacking the political will to use them. Because, for instance, uh, the population doesn't support you, and they've been they're being being misled, or or just uh, in general polarized.
0: The next question is going to be about lessons uh, from uh, this war, and what I think is interesting is some of these are not new lessons. Uh, obviously, technology is is uh, changing stuff, and you know we're seeing unmanned systems being used in novel and innovative ways, but ultimately they're also air weapons. Whereas it brings back a lot of. Time-tested lessons on having enough munitions matter. Uh, having uh, you know that industrial capacity is intimately linked to your ability to be able to generate uh, combat power. Um, you know what? What are what do your supply chains look like, and what are your vulnerabilities look like? Sure. From from your perspective, studying this conflict, what do you think are the most important lessons that should be, or reminders, or or lessons relearned, as well as new lessons? that policymakers have to absorb no matter where they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're definitely uh, observing the, the, the conflict and, and taking some new lessons all the time. And, and I think there are different types of lessons. There are uh, the lessons related to the, to the kinetic warfare, which are also the ones that you mentioned. Uh, it's attrition warfare, so you're going to need uh, ammunition. Uh, you're going to need the logistics, but then also you got to broaden it uh, a little bit you got to look at the the logistics you got to look at the, the supply chains but then you can broaden it even further and think about what kind of um, vulnerabilities uh, russia is trying to exploit in uh, ukraine so then it's about cyber it's about space domain it's about international law uh, it is about economic uh, instruments of power uh, it is about a lot of things and and the fact that all of these are happening at the same time Last year, it became a, you know, first and foremost, a kinetic uh, military conventional conflict. But all of these other things never stopped happening. Uh, and they are, they are a really important part of the overall Russian strategy in trying to, to, to find those vulnerabilities. So we got to uh, analyze all those different aspects and we got to analyze their interdependencies and the ways that the, Russia is trying to use these, these various uh, instruments in a, in a more or less integrated way. The good thing is that they are not that good yet in integrating the different tools, uh, but they are also learning. Maybe one one final thing about Ukraine is, and it's kind of an obvious one, but I think it needs to be mentioned. And that's the fact that uh, there was a lot of unity in Ukraine. There was mental resilience. There was willingness to defend the country and there was a, you know, a legitimacy for the decisions that the, the president and, and his advisors took. So that's uh, that's the crucial part of it. And now we have seen uh, how far that can actually take you in, in, in this kind of warfare. And what Ukraine has done has been really, really amazing in that sense.
0: I, I think this is a, a good place to ask you about uh, information as a weapon. Um, information can be actually the most powerful uh, weapon. I, I've got a cyber question, but to the notion of unity and national resilience, Uh, We've seen uh, the Russians uh, try to cause as much disruption uh, within uh, Europe, um, right funding both left and right, uh, divisive uh, candidates, uh, toxic messaging. Uh, Meta just took down uh, the largest in a four-year campaign, took down the largest Chinese um, internet uh, effort uh, to spread disinformation, misinformation, uh, uh, ultimately. Information is a very powerful weapon, and Europe has tried to do a good job on this, But and Scandinavian nations in particular have, have worked this very hard. But in the United States, for example, all of these cacophonous voices, the Russians played a key role in 2016. Again, the Chinese have been very, very active in these socially divisive messaging. And then you get useful idiots within the system that then help propel this, right? Politicians who misinformed the public. Ultimately, how dangerous is the misinformation, disinformation piece of this? Because absent societal cohesion, nothing is possible. How how important is this piece of it, and what's the right way to work that to to counter it? Because our adversaries know, as free societies, you know, you you can start these rumors running, and you know, pe- people will pick up and do do your job for you to divide divide nations.
1: Yeah. So yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, information is a is a hugely powerful weapon, and it's especially powerful uh, against democratic societies because of the uh, open media, um, vibrant political debate and and the logic of the private sector, and and all that. Those are good things, but they also bring uh, certain vulnerabilities which can be then exploited by uh, from the outside. So so it is a huge risk because it's undermining the, the basic principles uh, of the society. And if you can somehow um, uh, affect uh, the information environment, that could then have huge repercussions uh, across the other domains, because you might, uh, for instance, uh, incapacitate uh, decision-making or, or just uh, uh, destroy the, the processes. So, so there are, are def- definitely huge uh, potential repercussions. But what to do about it then? Um, I think there is no one answer, uh, but uh, it has to be worked on on different levels. So you got to have a societal resilience. How do you do that? Uh, you got to build uh, media literacy among the population, uh, their digital skills. Uh, but you got to also um, do the, the ba- basic fact checking and, and debunking of, of this information on a, on a daily basis you got to leverage the civil society to, to do that as well and then you got to add also maybe a layer of uh, and i know it's kind of a bad word but uh, but regulation for for want of a better word because uh, for instance the social media platforms but also other actors there needs to be some basic uh, ground rules on on what to do with disinformation and how to make sure that it's not uh, creeping uh, across the across the board in in our our debates and and discourses so um, it's a huge problem. There's no one way to, to go about it, but uh, has to be combated on, on different levels.
0: I, I want to talk about uh, great powers uh, in, a, in a second, specifically you know, Russia, but also uh, about China. But first, I want to ask you, what's the key to objectively assessing threats, right? Whether it's, it's Russia, uh, China, you know, cyber, ultimately, everybody has their own biases. Uh, right. I mean, if you're Gerard Schroeder, you you look at Russia as uh, you know friendly, and you know even some French leaders have said that you know uh, you know that well Russia's you know really not that bad, and they have their own sphere. Hmm. Ultimately, how do you assess the information so that it is as objective as possible? Because you're actually putting together a hybrid threat roadmap, and its accuracy and its objectivity is key to its credibility.
1: Yeah, it's uh, a good question. And uh, so what, what we're doing is we're looking at, uh, at cases, case studies, and then we're trying to, to come up with kind of a, a playbook that, they, that Russia or, or China might use. But then it's also another thing, you know, uh, when we talk about resilience, you can also do part of it um, kind of mm-hmm. with being agnostic about the threat, because how you actually beef up your resilience uh, is sometimes um, doesn't matter what, it, what the threat is. You just build certain uh, safeguards, uh, you build uh, overall resilience and you build certain capabilities. So it's not even necessary always to take the, the actor specific approach. But of course, you got to also think about the, the actors themselves. And that's uh, why we're trying to, to, to figure out what are the playbooks uh, that uh, Russia or China might use. So
0: as you're uh, looking at that playbook, um, you know, unfortunately, Russia is where it is. Finland, for example, will always be uh, Russia's uh, neighbor. uh, And and Europe will have to contend with Russia as it's had to contend with Russia uh, for centuries. What's the long term outlook? Because the Russians at this point are making it total war. Um, his, his drive is to manage to destroy Ukraine as a functioning sovereign state. Uh, right, Either you're part of the Russian sphere, and if you're not, I'm going to destroy you. Tensions yeah. are running high in the Baltics. Um, tensions are running so high that it prompted Finland to make an extraordinary decision along with Sweden to join NATO. What does that long-term Russian playbook look like, Rosmus? And what is it that leaders have to be prepared for? Because even if Putin You know, somebody after Putin will be arguably as bad as Putin and could be worse. Uh, Yanis (laughs) Kaisershchitz makes that point all the time. You know, hey, be careful, because whoever it is who's going to come after him might actually be worse than him in in some respects. What's what's the sense on how folks need to be looking at this as a long term challenge?
1: I think what makes it difficult uh, in the first hand is that even Russia doesn't know what is the what is the long term perspective because it will depend on on what happens in in this war and it will depend on the on the domestic dynamics. And it's really difficult to to figure it out from the outside. But I think in any case, uh, what uh, everybody needs to be prepared for is that this is a long term um, situation. It's a long term damage to the relationship with Russia, uh, obviously. So uh, that's going to have to be the starting point uh, for, for anything that we do. It means that we have to get prepared uh, for this war to continue or for this war to, to, to spread. Um, but uh, obviously there will be a time uh, after the war. Uh, so people will uh, eventually need to start thinking about bringing Russia to become part of uh, this, uh, this European uh, security architecture but on what terms uh, they cannot be on Russia's terms it has to be uh, on on the West's on Europe's terms but uh, that time will come for now Uh, the key thing is just to keep supporting Ukraine and make sure that at least it's not Russia that will get to dictate the terms uh, of that engagement uh, afterwards
0: Um, what are the uh, actions that Europe Uh, Europe really has stood up in uh, a number of ways, Uh, but on the other hand, has not also been as tough as it could and should be uh, ultimately, Uh, right? I mean, there are still some wealthy uh, Russians uh, who's, you know, where, uh, you know, the husband uh, might uh, not be visiting Europe regularly, but their families continue to spend money and and benefit from their apartments and and some of their uh, possessions in Europe. And there is this concern that the Russians aren't through provoking uh, NATO. Uh, Some of the uh, destruction of grain facilities on the Danube are perilously close to uh, European territory. There's a lot of misbehavior in the high north. There's a lot of misbehavior also over the Baltic. Um, Ultimately, what are the things that Russia could do next as escalatory steps uh, right? They're not through making nuclear threats all the time. What are some of the things that that playbook from your standpoint that, you know, you guys have made an analysis of how Russia could behave? What are the things that people have to be prepared that Russia could be doing over the next couple of years from from their playbook?
1: Yeah, it's been a definitely been a learning process now during the last year or so uh, with the war uh, taking place. Uh, and now I still think that uh, Europe hasn't done enough to support Ukraine, but uh, the support has been growing. But I think the more important part is that uh, Europe has remained united uh, throughout, and I think that was the major one of the major miscalculations uh, by Russia, because they definitely didn't count uh, on that being the case, given the the, the quite diverse interests uh, of of different European countries, and you can see still see those uh, diverging interests in 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 some in some ways, uh, but uh, broadly speaking, Europe has been uh, remarkably united throughout. And while there's, of course, there's pressure uh, on that unity and, and domestic polis- politics are taking certain countries in, in different directions, but uh, it still looks like that unity is, is going to hold for now. So I'm not, um, I don't think that uh, that Russia will, will uh, win this by just uh, waiting, waiting Europe out. But um, of course, there's the risk of uh, escalation, which needs to be considered. And I think the interesting part has been that uh, while the EU has taken a, a big role in, in supporting Ukraine, Ukraine and standing up against Russia, if you look at the, the support to Ukraine, military support, macroeconomic support and so on, or if you look at the sanctions uh, or if you even look at the, what, what the papers now say about the, the strategy papers say about Russia, I think all that's good, but uh, the, the other thing is that um, I don't think everybody, especially in the European Union, has thought through the consequences of, of actually taking this hard line against Russia. Because if you do that, you're also going to be have to be prepared for escalation. And right. again, I think that this is the right approach uh, by and large from, from Europe. But it also, you know, one on one strategy, you got to think through uh, the possible consequences. So there's still uh, work to be done uh, to, to, first of all, to, to keep that unity, but also to think through uh, the different uh, potential consequences. I, I think there's, there's a lot to do there. And, and, you know, key part being, how do you integrate your policies, your capabilities in setting up a, a united uh, wall against uh, Russian uh, interference or, or escalation attempts? Uh, I think that's the key question.
0: Europe, uh, you could argue, you know, having had uh, centuries, unfortunately, a millennia of practice uh, in in conflict, uh, you could argue had built up some strategic tools. Uh, but there has been a little bit of a concern that the overall strategic uh, or culture of strategy has uh, eroded. Um, what do, I mean, obviously it's it's said, I think uh, you and I have talked about this, right? You get good at strategy by doing a lot of strategy and learning and continuing to adapt on what reality is, trying to be objective. And and what is it, you may not want to do it, but you have to do it because your adversary is pushing you uh, to uh, to have to do that, uh, to have to take some specific actions. What What in your view are the most important actions that European governments have to take to get better at strategy, get better at strategic foresight, and get better at going beyond Rasmus just talking points, but actually to building strategy. If you are going to get tough, you have to then take second, third, fourth, 10th order. Okay, what's going to happen? Because this is a chess game and the other guy may be a few moves ahead. You want to be ready for those moves. Um, you right. know, If you're going to sanction people, you have to keep adjusting the sanctions if you want to keep the pressure. You can't announce sanctions 18 months ago and say, well, we unprecedented sanctions. The Russians get used to those sanctions and adapt accordingly. They strike alliances with China as well as North Korea and Iran to get military capability. What do European countries have to do to improve their yeah. ability to be strategic?
1: Yeah, I mean, in the end, it, it comes down to, to strategic culture or or lack of strategic culture, as as we were discussing earlier. And uh, there are countries in Europe where the strategic culture is is almost non-existent, and then there are the ones uh, where where strategic culture definitely exists. Um, but even in those countries where it exists, uh, it can always use um, a little bit of uh, updating. Um, you know, you get a. Combine uh, having your defense in a good shape with having the kind of mental and, and other kinds of tools uh, to be prepared. But um, I think what is interesting also is to look at the, the, the European perspective and, and the European Union perspective. Because as I said, the European Union is, is doing a lot uh, vis-a-vis Russia, but uh, it's lacking strategic culture. In a way, you can't blame them because, uh, for instance, the commission has been almost, let's say, prohibited by the treaties uh, to come up with a strategic culture. uh, And there has been this idea of of the EU being, let's say, a more more postmodern power. And in my view, it can continue being a postmodern power. But that means should mean at least the capacity for for self-reflection and adaptation because the environment has changed a lot and the union has to change with it. So it has to build this uh, strategic culture, but um, how to overcome the diverse uh, interests? Uh, never going to be easy. I don't think we'll 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 get there anytime soon. But uh, what is required anyway is to to have these discussions, robust uh, discussions about strategy, uh, jointly in in smaller combinations, bilaterally, uh, minilaterally, multilaterally, multilaterally, uh, in NATO, uh, in the EU, and and so on. That's how you slowly at least start to build uh, a more aligned uh, strategic picture. And hopefully also during the process you can build some uh, trust because trust is the the, the currency uh, of this kind of cooperation.
0: Um, l- let me ask you uh, about China. Um, there is a, a wide array of views uh, in Europe on China uh, regarding the nature of a challenge. Is it an economic challenge? Is it a human rights challenge? Is it... Uh, you know, we've seen, for example, Lithuania uh, standing up uh, to China and then being punished. I think that was kind of a watershed uh, moment. And yet there are some folks who do have a sense, look, just bury your head in the sand, keep trading, and this will all end up well. Uh, we saw how that worked with Russia. Uh, and once they took a, you know, got a taste of Ukraine, they wanted a bigger bite, uh, not that that was a sufficient uh, bite. Um, ultimately. What's the correct assessment of China uh, as an adversary? You said you have to have a much more holistic view of what constitutes threats. They could be economic threats, for example, uh, as well, diplomatic challenges. Uh, still with the foundation and the basics, right, of the EU is is the rule of law and human rights is at the heart of the EU project. What's the correct assessment of the danger that China poses uh, to Europe even if it's on the other side of the planet
1: Yeah so I think the first point is that uh, Europe is still learning how to, to to deal with China and how to understand China. The US is, is much more advanced uh, on that and that's also maybe the reason the, why why Europe is, is taking a lot of its cues from from the US. Uh, from let's say from Finland's perspective it's uh hard to see China because Russia is standing in front of them uh, geographically speaking so uh, but definitely european countries are are learning um, right now the the consensus view is to to look at china as a as as a partner a competitor and a systemic rival so there's something for everybody basically but I think it's not that bad formulation because it also includes uh, those those parts uh, which emphasize the threat potential of china and that also means that there is a pretty good uh, understanding of at least some of the capabilities that need to be developed some of the actions that need to be taken to to counter china or the the threat that might come from china and those are you know securing supply chains. Um, it's uh, building economic and other types of instruments to to withstand uh, economic coercion, but uh, but it's also uh, a lot of other um, capacities. So I wouldn't be too pessimistic about uh, the, the European uh, approach to China. It's definitely turning slowly and and the understanding is still growing from a from a low base. But uh, at least there's there's movement movement uh, in the right direction.
0: Uh, do you Do you think that it will be an issue on which uh, the United States and Europe draws closer together? Uh, because it has been a sore spot until very recently where the European view is kind of catching up more to the us. view, even though that's presenting all of us with enormous challenges, uh, especially on the economic front, right? I mean, this sort of disengagement is, problematic and what the right engagement is, considering the Chinese tendency, you know, European friends of mine used to say this all the time, decades ago, you know, almost two decades ago, we have to be very careful because everything we sell, the Chinese will come back at us in a weapon. Uh, one right. of these days, do you, do you see an increasing convergence in, in views?
1: I think there's still quite a lot of convergence. Um, I mean, even the terminology is, is similar these days, uh, starting with de-risking. Uh, but I think, you know, if you, if you look at what needs to happen, uh because we're looking at strategic competition globally, uh, it means that uh, and China is a powerful actor in, in that strategic competition. Even such a huge actor like the US would need partners to work with. So and I don't think there is any more suitable partner to, to tackle that threat in this strategic competition than uh, Europe and mostly acting uh, through the European Union. So um, I think there is the common interest is there. So then you just start uh, working on, on the details. What are the trade-offs? Uh, do we need 100% alignment? No, I think uh, if we get to 80% 90% alignment, that's already a, a pretty good achievement. So um, there is this uh, this partnership, transatlantic partnership, but it just needs to be needs to be fine-tuned and everybody needs to see what's the big picture and not to really haggle over the, you know, the industrial aspects uh, or or the other things because this is the, the major issue uh, of our time.
0: Our time is drawing short uh, and uh, two questions. One is about cyber. Um, the United States uh, has, you know, all nations have been working on improving uh, cybersecurity and addressing uh, vulnerabilities, right? Huawei was only one of those challenges, but again, even uh, na- you know, nations will take a long time to unwind. From a hardware standpoint, their vulnerabilities, and then on, you know, whether it's ransomware or whether it's cyber attacks from Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran, uh, are problematic. How do you assess the progress Europe is making? uh, Right, I mean, the United States is taking this as sort of a systemic, serious threat, Uh, and so we have a tendency of moving a little bit more quickly when we do it. We we also have money. right down to the semiconductor part of this, right? I mean, make that investment to have secure supply chains. How how do you assess the progress Europe is making and what more needs to be done on the entire cyber picture?
1: That's a hard question because in, in Europe, you have uh, countries that uh, have been doing a lot for, for quite some time and then you have countries that are, are starting. So there are different levels uh, of, um, of understanding and of capabilities, uh, I would say, but um, I think um, at least Europeans should agree on, on that basic fact that this is a major uh, threat. And if you look at it from the, let's say, hybrid threat perspective, uh, cyber is a little bit similar to, to information in a sense that the, these are the horizontal uh, domains. We actually call them domains. So because they have huge spillover effects and they are connected to a lot of other domains. Uh, so usually there's always an implication on on something on information domain, and a lot of the times uh, cyber domain is is also involved uh, in in in, uh, in these types of uh, malign activities. So so we get a lead, really uh, put some put some focus on that, but the the progress it's yeah uh, depends on the country I would say.
0: Um, Let me ask you uh, one last question, which is an industrial uh, question. Historically, industrial capacity was seen as a key national security uh, capability, but especially in the years after the Cold War and increasing globalization. Well, you know, you didn't necessarily have to make the vehicles. You could buy them from somewhere. And even if you were the person who was making the vehicles, well, I can buy the armor from here. I can buy engines from China. You know, I can buy steel from the Russians. Uh, you know, I can buy tires from the Chinese. And then you realize there's a war, and all of a sudden, you can't get the engines, you can't get the armor, and you can't get the tires, which is all kind of problematic. What are some of the important industrial lessons uh, that are learned from all of this and an approach? That maybe we all have to take as democracies to sort of work together. Because whether you're Estonia or Finland or Spain or Italy, the, the capabilities we need are actually very similar if we're going to fight as allies and partners. So we might actually it might make sense for us to sort of distribute this industrial footprint amongst us uh, to make life easier and allow us to surge production, for example. What's the right way to look at this?
1: Hmm. I think the first point is that, uh, well, once again, to to understand the different linkages, it's not industry in a vacuum, but it's industry and then looking at the supply chains. It's industry and then you can look at the technology. And I think importantly, at least in the European context, you shouldn't let industry drive your strategy, but it should be the other way around. And this is not always the case. Um, but then the, the other thing is really, and I think you also alluded to that, is that European countries are really small. Uh, the, the the national base and the requirements are relatively small, and there's a lot of duplication. There's a lot of inefficiency. So there needs to be more uh, cooperation uh, between the countries. And and there is there are a lot of initi- initiatives, but uh, essentially uh, a lot of the industries uh, are still national, and the politics are still uh, driving uh, the, the national approach to 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 defense industry. So. It needs a, a, a culture change, it needs some uh, incentives to, to, to bring about the change. But I think this has been going on for too long and, and now would be uh, the time to, to start looking at a little bit from a, from a, from a broader perspective, from a European perspective.
0: Rosmus, uh, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it, especially uh, at the very end uh, of your tenure. And we wish you all the best of luck uh, in your new assignment and look forward to continuing uh, to keep in touch. And you're always welcome on the program.
1: Thank you so much, Vago. Great to be with you.